food is not actually able to fully meet that need because to actually feel at home in the world, you have to be connected. You have to have a full complement of relationships to humans and non-humans, to place, to nature. You have to have intimacy in those relationships. Uh, You have to be known. You have to be seen for who you are. If you have all of that, you will not have food cravings, but we don't have all of that in this society. Hello, friend, and welcome to episode 32 of the Feeling Full podcast. I hope you're having an excellent day wherever you are. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets or without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, my guest is Charles Eisenstein. I am really excited about this conversation I had with Charles. Charles is a speaker, spiritual teacher, and author. He's an out-of-the-box revolutionary thinker, and in his work, he peels back the veil on modern society and the culture we live in. He shares a different perspective, a new story, so to speak, that we can all lean into. I first stumbled upon Charles on Oprah, Super Soul Sunday, discussing the true impact our smallest actions have on our lives and humanity as a whole. Growing up, Charles struggled with his slim build. Often ridiculed and bullied for his weight, he carried around the feelings of shame and not enoughness for something he didn't even do and started to think to himself that maybe people were right. He explored every diet and didn't like how almost all diets preached a different dogmatic approach, often having contradicting philosophies. Charles wanted to see what would happen if he totally trusted his body, his cravings, and desires. This eventually led him to write an incredible book called The Yoga of Eating. So many of the concepts Charles writes about in his book hit a deep place in me. The idea of understanding the intelligence of our cravings. Where are our cravings coming from? What are they trying to communicate and teach us? Why willpower won't work and the impact self-judgment and shame has on our lives. He also shares a deeper awareness around food, the energy, and all of it that we consume. In our conversation today, we discuss self-acceptance, developing inner trust, forgiving yourself, meeting yourself where you're at, understanding our modern-day food culture and the impact it has on our lives. He also shares how to become aware of these things so you can have more ease and flow with your food and body. I also really enjoyed Charles' most recent book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. In this book, Charles shares real-life stories showing how small individual acts of courage, kindness, and self-trust can change our culture's guiding narrative of separation, which he shows has generated the present reality we live in. Much of Charles's work is available on his website for little or no cost. If this sounds interesting to you, I'd highly recommend checking him out at charleseisenstein.org. And before we get started, it would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Not only will this ensure that you never miss an episode, but you'll also greatly help the growth of the podcast. Alrighty, thanks for joining and let's jump right in. After that accident, I couldn't sleep for days. And I was in Costa Rica on this retreat for three weeks. And like, you know, when the van crashed, I was right behind the driver. Mm-hmm. And no one had seatbelts on. And we were mm-hmm. like 16 people in a 15-passenger van. 
So you can imagine, and, and mostly women. So there's a lot of screeching, a lot of like, you know, frantic, wow. and you know, it was just like, it's really intense. And I was behind the driver and he's like, the brakes aren't working, the brakes aren't working. And I thought he was joking because this guy's like very masculine man. You know, you don't, you've never seen him show that kind of emotion. And I jump up behind to see what he, what's going on. And I like to pull myself up over his chair. I'm like, what, what's going on? And he's like, the brakes, and he's, you know, trying everything. Mm-hmm. And when we crashed and had a head-on collision, I remember the glass like cracking, like like cracking. And I was like, no, this is not the way it's supposed to end. Like, I remember feeling like this is not the way it's supposed to I remember that those were the thoughts. I'm like, no, there's like so much more. There's all these things and all my thoughts and everything just kind of crumbled right in front of me. All the dreams, all the things that I thought were just like, I'm like, oh shit, this is what like kind of like, this is those things they say could happen that might happen and it's happening right now and it's happening to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm missing out in everything that I really ever wanted. And that kind of set off this idea of like, what am I really here to do? I was on this retreat in Costa Rica and I, I remember there was this moment where I had, where I, I felt a lot of shame around my body after I lost a lot of weight mm-hmm. and taking my shirt off in public was like, literally like peeling a layer of my skin off my flesh. Wow. It was like the most terrifying thing that somebody would see me with my loose skin. Because all I wanted when I lost, when I lost, when I was so heavy was to fit into it with everybody to not be different. And here right. I am showing how different I really am. You lost all the weight and you're still different. Exactly. Right. As, you're as, still as, ashamed. Yeah. Yeah. So I had this terrible sense of shame. And so like I was talking to somebody on the retreat and she was like, why don't you try to take your shirt off, you know, for a minute by the pool. And she was one of the instructors and like, see how you feel. Like you never, you don't, you don't, never did it before. And it was 95 degrees. It was really hot. And I was like, I needed to figure out a way to survive three weeks in the jungle. It was like, you know, 95 was on a cool day. So I did that once and no, and I, I didn't really, I was like, wow, that kind of doesn't feel so bad. You know, I was also very self People didn't, didn't gather around in groups and start pointing <laughs> at you. <laughs> no, exactly. Like no one, I was like, oh, wow. It feels kind of good to be by a pool without a shirt on. And, this, and there's a few people around. No one, no one paid attention. I was like, oh, it's, it's all in my head. And then so one of the first exercises we had in the retreat was to try to figure out like what we thought our life's purpose was. I know it's kind of like, you know, big audacious goal to try to figure out, you know, it's like something that takes a lot of work. But through drawing on all the experiences that we had in our lives, we were trying to figure out what our life's purpose was. And basically I got on stage in front of everybody in front of like 35, 40 people. And I was sharing my life purpose, what I thought, you know, and I explained to everybody where I was coming from, how I was really motivated by money for most of my life. And I exited my company and I really wanted to lose a lot of weight and I lost a lot of weight, but I still feel very unhappy. And at that moment, after sharing the story for five or 10 minutes, I just took my shirt off in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And that moment, I know there's, there's, there's one moment that like completely change everything. That was one of those moments that like I saw myself in a very different way. Everyone just clapped and was, you know, cheering and there's so much enthusiasm. And I just was like, holy shit. You know, I was reading this book by Brene Brown, Darren Greeley at the time as well. And I was like, she's right. Like people actually want to be closer to me after that experience. And everything I thought going into the retreat was completely wrong. All mm-hmm. the fears I had, all the insecurities I had about the people I was going to be around and the relationships and the intimacy and the connection, it was all wrong. I didn't have to keep my yeah. shirt on. Yeah, you didn't have to display a fake version of yourself in order to be liked, in order to be loved, right? Like, where did we get that idea? I mean, actually, it's not like just a dumb idea that we got. Actually, it's beamed at us from every direction by the media, by 
education even uh, by the language the the idea that there's some something fundamentally wrong with you like once you accept that i mean it's even in like darwinian biology which says that you know fundamentally you are programmed to maximize your self interest you are basically an asshole that that's genetics sorry religion says the same thing uh, you know uh, i mean not esoteric religions but institutionally you know original sin and all that kind of stuff so of course you're not lovable only god loves you as this kind of patronizing indulgence you know yeah you suck but i'm going to love you anyway so yeah like it's not like you just had a dumb idea that you that you weren't going to accept yourself this is the uh, the programming that um it's so liberating to overcome that and like yeah i just love that story i don't know like when i am confronted with somebody who is just like so perfect so beautiful so accomplished i might feel intimidated by them but it's hard actually to feel the love mm. cuz i'm like i know i'm not seeing all of them like the love comes and it's not like i have to like I don't know. I mean, maybe there's something of like I feel threatened by super successful, super beautiful, super people who have everything, every their relationship their per, is perfect, they're wealthy, they're intelligent, they're productive, they're like on it, you know, and I might feel diminished. But yeah, and it's not like I, you know, need to to discount all of that. But that's not why I love them. Let's put it that way. That's not why I love them. If I love them, it isn't because of that. And if I love myself, yeah, you know, this is the thing, like love to be loved, to be seen, to be known by others and by oneself, it's such a powerful need that if the only way that I can get a little bit of that is by self-delusion by painting myself to myself as the hero of the story and a good person and superior to others and if the only way i can get a little taste of that is by boasting to others and painting an image and manipulating them into liking me etc cetera, etc cetera. like if that's the only way that i know how to do that i forgive myself for that Ah, poor guy, you know, poor guy. He's afraid to take off his shirt. You know, he's he's afraid to. He he needs to boast and brag and and show the image of success and and like I'm talking about me. You know, was there a point in your life where you felt that you were trying to appear to people or the universe in a certain way that had you? go down this exploration oh yeah i mean i don't know i would i would uh try to appear really smart for example probably because i you know in school i got praise for that i got validation for that our society values that you know so and i am probably pretty smart but to like go out of my way to look smart to engineer situations so that my knowledge would be 
part of the conversation. Like, and, and, I, and I hope that there's no element of like self-disgust in what I'm saying. It's more of like, yeah, I would do that. And it's not because I'm a horrible person. It's because I had an unmet need. Almost everything that we judge ourselves and each other for actually comes from an unmet need. What would you say your unmet need was that you um, you were trying to have met by this? Uh, uh, by, to, by, yeah, to be unconditionally loved and accepted for the totality of who I am. So there are things that I was ashamed of that I had been shamed for. So let me hide those, uh, even for myself, and show the part of me that's the most impressive. Then I will be loved. What, do you mind sharing some of those things? Sure. I mean, I guess a lot of it when I was a kid, you know, I was, uh, I reached puberty late. I was very slight of build and bullied and ridiculed for that. So I became ashamed of my body, only wanted to, it to be seen in a certain way from a certain direction, you know, my good side. and would rather show my mind you know i was made fun for my singing i was i was I was made fun of for for when i tried to dance you know so like like all the things that i sucked at i would basically try to not do and but it was even more like this shame for not even something i did but like this mm. sneaking suspicion that i myself am shameful like there's something fundamentally wrong with charles and that was a, a conclusion you came to while you were experiencing being bullied yeah like there's part of me that's like they're right right you know they're right they're in in despising and ridiculing me their demonstrations of disgust toward me are accurate and maybe i can get some redemption by joining in with them and ridiculing myself because a part of me believes it. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I don't think my story is that, you know, that uncommon, really. No, to but varying it's varying degrees in different ways. It's almost universal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, but it takes courage to share, I think, especially stuff around our bodies, right? Because we are going to, you know, we're walking around the planet and we're with yeah. our, we're with ourselves. And I think that's why, I mean, our stories are around our bodies are maybe different in the terms of I was, heavier and i was getting bullied and made fun of and you were you know slimmer and you were being f bullied and made fun of but we both both made agreements with ourselves that something was inherently wrong with us and then we operated from that place by finding other ways of getting self-validation whether it was through right. you know business or through intelligence right i'm really curious i want to i want to dive into your first book that you wrote I know you're five books deep at this point that are published. I'm not sure if there's others that are unpublished, but I know you've published five. And I'm curious, the yoga of eating, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sometimes say that that was my practice book. But you know, a lot, a lot of the ideas that I would write about later had their first airing in that book. And really, that book came from my explorations of various dietary philosophies and health practices. Uh, you know, I mean, partly coming from what we were just talking about, like 
this hunger for self-improvement coming from I'm not good enough as I am. Uh, so maybe I can improve myself and demonstrate my virtue through my diet. Like that was something that was comfortable for me to change. So I explored various diets and, and explored them by trying them, but also explored them by reading a lot about them. And what I discovered was that there was blatant contradiction among these different dietary philosophies and that whichever one I was reading about seemed like compelling, seemed totally true and incontrovertible. And only a fool would eat any differently. Only a fool would, you know, eat cooked food or only a fool, fool would eat meat or only a fool wouldn't eat meat. There were very strong and dogmatic ideologies that all contradicted each other. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Uh, am I supposed to just get lucky and pick one, the true gospel? Or is there some bigger theory that contains and explains all of them? And do I have to become like a chemist and a researcher just for something as simple as what food do I eat? Like, do I have to become a scientist just to answer that question? Well, deer don't need to become a scientist to know what herb to eat when they're injured to heal themselves. Rabbits can sniff out exactly the right food for them. Like, I'm, I'm an animal too. I should be able to do that too. So I developed this uh, exploration of self-trust. What would happen if I totally trusted my body? And what does that mean? It means something as simple as trusting desire. What do I actually want? And at first that seems insane because that does not mean that I will have no limit on my cravings and I'll just eat an entire bag of Oreos or whatever I want. Like, but why is that a bad thing? Like our programming is whatever I want, that's a bad thing. Want is a bad thing. You have to, to govern that and control that and transcend wanting for higher things. And, and I was like, no, this transcendence and this war against the flesh, that's part of the war on nature that has gotten us into this problem. When I began to trust my body, one of the first things I realized is that I had no idea what I actually wanted. It wasn't that I was eating too much of what I wanted. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. I was eating things compulsively that I didn't even want, that didn't make me feel good. So I was like, okay, what if I trust it for real? What if I get serious about only eating what I want and eating all that I want and not eating things I don't want? Like what happens then? And that was the, the origin of that book, which is really just about self-trust. You're saying a lot of really interesting things. And I, I thoroughly um, enjoyed your book because of the unique perspective you share with this, you know, it kind of like this intuitive eating idea, right? Which is intuitive eating is trusting your intuition that your body knows what it wants, knows what it needs. Kind of like their example, right? When it eats a plant for, for medicine, when it's injured, it's very similar. So, I mean, intuitive eating is something that, you know, I'm not an intuitive eater yet. I'm open that the possibility exists. And which is why I was so interested in, in the book. I find myself getting closer to an intuitive eater as I've changed my desires. For, so I think my desire for different foods have changed over the last 10 years through my you know, weight loss journey. I now crave 
vegetables or fish and things, these foods I would never eat, you know, 10 years ago, never mm -hmm. want to eat, right? Also, I was forced, which was rare. So I, I'm curious, like in, in a highly triggering environment of our modern day society, you know, it feels a little bit abstract to say, follow the cravings and follow your wants because if someone has a TV, for example, or someone, you know, is in a, in a, in a triggering relationship or someone's in a challenging work environment with a boss that they don't, that triggers them and sets them off. And I'm using the word trigger a lot because a lot of times we use food to respond to trigger. So if we just allow all our triggers and cravings to turn into desires, that can feed somebody who's obese to be, get even, even bigger or heavier. Yeah. So part of it is distinguishing between cravings and an authentic appetite. One thing that happens when you really pay attention to the experience of taking something into your body is that things that don't actually make you feel good, that becomes much more clear. So basically a lot of cravings and, and, and TV advertising actually aggravates this, but a lot of cravings come from an attempt to meet a need that food or that kind of food cannot actually meet. So like, why do you have a craving for, for sugar or for snack food or something like that? It's not because your body actually needs that. And it's not because it even makes you feel good over the full experience. It's maybe because you're craving, you have an unmet need for intimacy, which is a kind of a sweetness that the sugary food temporarily meets, but it doesn't actually meet the need. It superficially meets it, but it doesn't actually bring intimacy into your life. Or in general, food can be a way to meet the need for connection. And it temporarily actually does connect you to the material world. Like you're putting a piece of the world in yourself. And in that moment, uh, and maybe if, if, if you or anyone listening has, has had that experience of being a compulsive eater, and by the way, just because you're thin does not mean that you don't have an eating problem or are a compulsive eater. It just, you know, doesn't show up in your body the same way. But if you have that experience, you, you might notice like there's a feeling of being at home when you're putting the food in. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a release, right? There's a comfort. Yeah. Like you, it's, it's like saying, I am here. In this moment, I am here. Well, food is not actually able to fully meet that need because to actually feel at home in the world, you have to be connected. You have to have a full complement of relationships to humans and non-humans, to place, to nature. You have to have intimacy in those relationships. Uh, you have to be known. You have to be seen for who you are. If you have all of that, you will not have food cravings. But we don't have all of that in this society. And one of the ways that we that that people meet this need to exist, which is to be related and connected, one way that they meet that need is by overeating. It's like maybe the best way to, to do it, or, or the only way available. And or the, so or, when, the, or, or the easiest way. Or the easiest way. It's been made, but it's been made available and it is good for business. And the same is with other addictions. They, they meet a need that, or they temporarily assuage the pain of the unmet need. 
but they don't fundamentally meet the need. Like no matter how much food you eat, it's not going to improve your intimacy. It's not going to bring you community. It's not going to connect you to nature beyond that act. So it's that, and that's the pattern of an addiction. It assuages the pain of the unmet need without actually meeting the need. And then you go and fight the addiction and you say, you're going to have to control my eating. But if you control the eating without meeting the unmet need, the craving will grow. And when you finally do meet that real need, the craving like can disappear. It becomes just an empty shell of a habit that is easily discarded. So like for some people, maybe like you get into a new relationship, you move into a new community, you find meaningful work. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, that addiction just has no compulsion anymore. The, this war on desire. It's like, yeah, it's maybe in a way necessary if the, like, I'm not, so I'm not saying, yeah, just indulge your cravings and that and end of story. What I'm saying is get serious about loving yourself. Get serious about reading your, meeting your real needs. Ask, what am I hungry for actually? Because if you're overeating, you're not actually hungry for the food, are you? Right. You're numbing something. I think it's interesting. You touched on willpower. I mean, many people will agree willpower runs out, right? That's why the, that's where the habit movement is such a popular thing. It's like create a habit because if you use willpower, it's never going to stick, right? Willpower is a depreciating technique to overcome something, especially as triggering as food or desirable as food. And one of the things you talk about is the cravings, how willpower is basically blocking the cravings, right? So when you when you use willpower to overcome something, you're essentially not learning the lesson the craving is, is wanting to teach you. The struggle there is understanding that it's okay to giving yourself permission to eat the thing and give into the craving to learn the lesson because it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable for somebody who's let's say someone someone is eating well they lose 20 30 pounds and they're feeling really good right and then they have a craving and they start eating in a way that they're not happy about and they're starting to gain weight that's where the discomfort comes from right? It's because they don't want to backpedal to where they were because of goals and dreams or desires to be mm -hmm. in, a, in a slimmer body. Or back to the fact that being overweight makes them, makes that old belief about themselves a reality. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of psychology around weight, you know, and armoring, you know, and like, I mean, and, and the identity positive and negative that goes along with a certain body shape and all that kind of stuff. What, what I'm saying is that, so willpower which is basically the war on desire. You know, I want to do it, but I'm not going to let myself do that. That is only necessary when the desire, which comes from an unmet need, like where does desire come from? Where does desire even come from? It's a biological program. It comes, it's driven by, by needs. Like if you hold your breath, you will desire to breathe. And that desire will become more and more intense. If you don't drink water, you get thirsty. You desire to drink. This is not a bad thing. What happens is that these, these desires get hijacked towards something that doesn't meet them. And you can actually feel that in your body. What I say is, okay, let's get serious about, let's get serious about pleasure. Let's get really serious about being good to myself. So 
yeah, like I have a craving now. Okay. And I'm going to, you know, the willpower didn't work anyway. So let's try something else. Like, let's face it. It didn't work after how many decades it didn't work. So let's try something else. Let's have that cookie and I'm going to have as many as I want. And I commit to fully feeling every bit of the pleasure and discomfort that comes from that without judgment. I feel the pleasure. And then, gosh, I don't feel very good now, do I? I feel bloated. I feel like this blood sugar thing. I feel this emptiness. I mean, it's hard for me to describe it, but if, but like, however it is for you, I don't feel good. Well, if you can fully feel that, you are teaching your body what that bag of cookies really is for you. It is not actually connection to the universe. It is not intimacy. It is a bag of cookies. And it is a certain set of feelings that include maybe some pleasure, but probably include a lot more discomfort. So you fully experience that. Just like if you say like you touch a hot stove and it hurts and you learn not to touch that hot stove, you don't need any willpower to not touch a hot stove. You don't need any willpower to to not dig your thumb into your eye. Are you like resisting that right now? All right. No. Are you, are you resisting that, no. that urge to stick? No, you're not. Because no. you know in your body that that doesn't feel good. Mm. But imagine if you had like uh, no pain receptors in your eye. Okay. And, and you stick your thumb in there. Wow. That feels kind of cool. It's all slippery, you know, and let me do that some more, you know, and then you get an eye infection you get eye damage and, and, Somebody says, you shouldn't do that. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll try to stop. Like you might need willpower to try to stop doing that. But if you're feeling it, then you're not going to need willpower. So the question then is what prevents us from fully feeling the effect of the harm that we're doing to ourselves, to fully feel that harm? One thing is distraction. You know, eat the bag of cookies. You feel like shit. I don't want to feel this way. Let me, you know, flip on the TV. Let's check my social media. Let's have another bag of cookies. Like that'll, that'll stop me from feeling. Another way though, is to beat yourself up to be like, I'm so weak. I'm so greedy. How, why did I do that? I'm going back on my commitment to myself and and you're in all that. Guess what? I mean, you're feeling something, but you're not feeling the cookies. You're feeling your, your, your self-judgment. You know, but so then I would say, no, let that go. Go back. How do I feel in my body? And and once you develop that muscle and develop that habit, I mean, that's the habit to develop. How do I feel? And, And it becomes more and more sensitive to the point where, like, I can literally feel my breakfast right now. It has a different vibration than another breakfast would have had. Like, I can feel who am I plus that breakfast? Who am I? How do I feel? What is it like to be me? And I can do that for anything I put into my body. And over time, like, you know, I I do develop habits around that. And I just, you know, don't eat the cookies as naturally as I don't stick my thumb in my eye. So it's not actually a path of struggle. I think that thing you're bringing up about the food that you had this morning for breakfast, how that became part of you. 
that's a really interesting, interesting point, right? Because like you say, food has an energy to it, right? Food has a vibration. And everything that we put inside of us, you know, it's the, another cliche saying you are what you eat, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's been around forever. Everyone's like, you are what you eat. And it's kind of like, I mean, I believe we are what we eat. I know you, I know it's something that you believe. And it's, I think when you don't, when you don't realize the, the feeling, when you don't realize the way that food is making you feel, essentially, you're not able to pay attention in the way that you're paying attention to now how breakfast made you feel because breakfast is part of you now breakfast actually is you in a sense yeah and you can extend that beyond food anything that you put into your field and anything that you experience becomes part of you like right now we're becoming part of each other and after this conversation if i tune in i'll I'll be able to feel you like Mm. i'm looking at your face i'm hearing your voice like these are also a kind of food and if i and i can do the same thing with that as I do with cookies, you know, and I can be like, how do I feel after interacting with this person? And it's not like I have to come to a a judgment about that was good. That was bad. Okay. You don't have to do that. This is super important. You don't have to put the experience of eating the cookies on some scale and say, okay, that felt bad. Therefore I resolve not to eat them again. No, do not do that. Simply trust that your experiencing of them will change you. You don't have to make a decision about whether that was good or not. In the same way, I don't have to decide, okay, do I like Mordechai or not? I mean, I might be able to say, yeah, you know, I might go to my wife after this and be like, oh, yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. He's a really good guy. You know, I mean, I might, but I don't need to do that to know in my body if you are somebody I would like to, you know, hang out with if we are paths crossed, you know, like, I mean, this is obvious, you know, like you, you, you can feel into anything that you've experienced and, it, and there's a feeling in your body about that. Like that is a presence. Everything that you take in, in any, through any of your senses becomes part of you. I'm with you on that. And I just want to bring it back to the food for, for a moment, just mm-hmm. so we can kind of drill on that because there's so many layers. It goes so many layers deep with food in itself. And while content and everything we, any, I mean, everything in our environments having some imprint on our body and our psychology and our being, but food seems like, I don't know, what, what do you say? Food is the most intimate thing that goes into our body? Or do you think that TV and people are just as influential? have the um, or maybe the same yeah. impact. I mean, it is an intimate act, you know, to take part of the universe, put it into yourself and it becomes you. So it's important. And for some people, it is the focal point of their sovereignty and their self-creation. But not for everybody. For some people, it's just not an issue. How do you, how do you mean some people it's not an issue? They just don't think about it that much. You know, it's, it's not something that they worry about. And their health and their well-being, it's not an issue of food. In fact, like that was kind of true for me. You know, like food was to change my diet was my comfort zone. I was putting more attention on food than I, than I should have. Where, where actually the key to my well-being, the key to my happiness was not in changing my diet from this to that. It was in the things that I was afraid to look at. 
And I, and I think like there's a term orthorexia, which is an obsession with eating right. You know, it's a way to, to put personal transformation into a domain that is actually just kind of a little too comfortable. Like, yeah, I'll change my diet again. Mm. But what maybe what really wants to change is your work or what really wants to change is your relationship. Well, what really wants to change is the way that you present yourself to others or, you know, what, what really wants to change could be something that isn't your diet, but um, that feels safe to change. So you change it and change it and change it and nothing changes. So the food, the way we eat is a symptom of what we're experiencing in our life. It sounds like that can happen too. Yeah. Like it could be a symptom of disconnection, a symptom of, well, like the things I was saying, lack of intimacy, you know, lack of community, lack of connection. And that's why I'm eating so much. And so like, yeah, then you, then, you know, we might go to war against the symptom and ignore the cause. Like greed, for example, is a symptom. Why would you ever eat more than you need or want accumulate purchase more than you need? That's stupid. Why would you do that? It's not even in your interest. So greed is not this overdrive of self-interest. Self-interest run amok. It's actually a diversion of self-interest into something that does not serve yourself. What actually serves yourself? Not accumulating anything because you're going to die someday. And there will come a moment where nothing that you've accumulated makes any difference or has any value to you at that deathbed moment, you know? The only thing that has any value is the beauty and love that you've sown into the world. Like that's obvious. The only way that that isn't true is if you're immortal and could take it all or could take it with you as the saying goes, but you can't. So greed is irrational. And the very narrow type of greed that we associate with overeating, it's not like you're too selfish and too, like the whole word doesn't even make sense, too greedy, you know? It's not that you're weaker than other people or more selfish than other people. It's simply that an unmet need has been channeled in this particular direction because of your circumstances, your family circumstances, your cultural circumstances, your genetic, karmic, like whatever circumstances make you you. In one person, the unmet need might be channeled toward manipulativeness and narcissism Another person might be channeled toward a gambling addiction. Another person might be channeled toward food. Like, and every single one of us is born into this society, which is pretty fucked up. Like, it is the world is not in good shape right now. And we are born into all kinds of trauma. And then the gaslighting is that it's your fault. Blame yourself. And that's actually part of the problem that creates even more of the dissociation, of the self-rejection, of the not feeling at home that powers the addictions. So the cure is actually part of the disease. I'm not going to say that there's a solution, but if we recognize the lost truth of our beauty and divinity and lovability, then we're on the path to meeting the needs. To be like, yeah, I want to meet my real needs, and that's okay. And even if it isn't okay, I can still do it. 
Like, I don't need someone to tell me it's okay. I love myself because I love myself. And there's a truth in that. It's like, you don't have to take this as dogma. I mean, I would, you know, ask people to even take a minute, you know, to find the resonance of truth in, in what I'm saying. Just interject for a second. I think what we're talking about is unconditional self-acceptance. You know, Gay Hendricks has this quote where he says this idea of like, if you can't accept yourself because it's so painful to accept yourself, then accept yourself for not, have, for not being able to accept yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like wherever you're at is okay. Yeah. And it's not your fault. You know, I think a lot of obesity and, and the weight problem, it's like this idea that we're to blame. Um, and I like the right. way you put it, like we're born into a system that is, is kind of built on a, a system of greed and, and lining the corporate pockets with money, especially when it comes to the food industry. Yeah. Yeah. One question that comes up is, okay, well, how do I accept myself? Because sometimes that can become like the next accomplishment that you're supposed to do. And another way to beat yourself up when you don't accept yourself, like how do I learn to love myself? And I want to say that this maybe is not something to think of in terms of an accomplishment or something that you have to achieve, but that it comes as a gift. For me, the way that self-love and self-acceptance has come, and I'm not saying that it's a completed process at all, but to the extent that I am more able now to love and accept myself, it came as a gift when others loved me and accepted me and saw through me, saw through my images, saw through my boasts, saw through my presentation, my postures, and loved me anyway. Like when they saw you without your shirt on and they loved you anyway, that taught you something. Mm. Like you took that in. Right. Yeah. And, And I'm saying now, like maybe if there's just a little bit of a vibration of love in my voice where it's not like I'm being patronizing and saying, oh yeah, you're greedy and selfish and weak and I love you anyway. No. I'm simply stating the truth that whatever you're judging yourself for, that happened because of what happened to you. And your soul chose to enter into a hard circumstance and a non-ideal world in order to heal from that, to take the path from that back to healing on behalf of humanity. Like it was an act of service that you descended into maybe a little bit of hell. Not So it's not like you had bad karma to do that. It goes all the way to that level. So what's the road? Is, is there something, I know you've been through this yourself in your life. Is there a, a method that you can share on how somebody can actually tap into that self-acceptance, the unconditional self-acceptance we're talking about, self-love? The first step is to acknowledge that it's already there. Like there's a little bit in there that feels relief at hearing these kind of teachings. Brene Brown, you know, Miguel Ruiz, like all these, and the things I'm saying, there's like a bit of relief and a recognition that this is true. And in the window 
of that moment, you can feel it. It's like, yeah, I love myself. I have compassion for myself, this little child, this soul born into this, these conditions. Like the self-love is already there. And how do you respond to that? There's a moment of, of recognition. There's a moment of gratitude. And then you can return to that whenever you choose. It's, it's there. It's a, a, a jewel that you carry. And the more you contemplate that jewel, the more its radiance fills you. And the more that you attune to others who also see that jewel. And, and conversations, people, relationships, and you, you can feel the totality of that experience of my interaction with this person. Pay attention. How do, how do you feel after having eaten that, that feast, eaten that snack? Same thing. Like, how do I feel after having eaten those cookies or drank that carrot juice? <laughs> like, we have an idea that drinking carrot juice is good for you, right? But is it? Or who are you going to trust? There's an authority that says it's really good for you. It's got, you know, the enzymes, you know, and it's got this, that, and other thing. But guess what? There's an authority that says it's not good for you. Uh, Chinese medicine. You're not supposed to drink all kinds of cold things that, are, that, that dampen your digestive fire and so forth. Like too much raw food? No. In Chinese medicine, that's all you know. And the raw food, yeah. Well, how do you know? I know how I know. I drink it. And I feel it in my body. Feel, just I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. And guess what? I actually don't have much of a desire to ever drink carrot juice. <laughs> Very occasionally, I will. And maybe in those moments, it's not like something is either good for you or bad for you. Because the body goes through changes, it goes through phases, it goes through cycles. Maybe there's a moment where it is good for you. How do you know? That you only know based on the information that you integrate when you pay full attention to the experience of taking in that juice, that cookie, that steak, that human being, that experience, that place, that, that building, that interaction. I think... In order to do that properly, like 100%, you need to relinquish a, a, an exceptional amount of control of outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right. That's it. Yeah. And, and maybe that's too much to ask. But right. there's a next step. That's the thing. There's a next step of relinquishing control that you are ready for. Otherwise, you wouldn't even have listened this far into this podcast. Exactly. It's, so it's just like that. Yeah. What's the gentle next step? What is the thing that I'm ready to lose control? And, and this kind of answers a question I kind of asked you earlier on in the interview is like, well, you know, it's like, what does somebody do with who's scared of, you know, giving up willpower or those parameters are, of, you know, following in the box of their program or diet, whatever they're on. And it's interesting because when you're on a program, there's still flexibility in the program. So you can still tap into how does the carrot juice make me feel? How does the steak make me feel or whatever you're eating based on your program? And you can start to tap into that right away without like, you know, you know, throwing it all out the window. Right. Yeah, yeah, you can practice in the domain of that your natural caution delineates. So, like, if you were like an alcoholic, you know, and you haven't drunk for three years, I'm not saying, okay, you know, start drinking again. 
and trust how it feels. Maybe there will come a point where you do that, uh, and maybe not. But there is a step into release of control and, and a step into self-trust that you're ready for. And only you, you know, only you can recognize what that is. And it usually, but I can say it feels a little daring. Yeah. Whatever yeah. it is, it feels a little daring. I have actually an online course that, about all this stuff called dietary transformation. And I think in that course, I, I give the metaphor of standing, you know, on the high dive and you feel like, yeah, I'm ready to make this jump. I feel kind of excited. I feel scared. Yeah. As opposed to standing on the high dive and all your friends or so-called friends are egging you on and calling you chicken. And you're like, no, I'm really not ready for this. That kind of fear is protective. You know, like you can trust that. Look for that feeling of daring and audacity and readiness. So it sounds like trust is an important thing here. And I'm you know, in order for someone to take off the the bumpers, you know, how do you develop that relationship with yourself that you're you're able to, you know, you're able to trust yourself in these in these situations? Because you know, it comes to me as somebody, if, and if I was listening to this podcast and I was trying to lose weight, I'd be like, every time I allow myself to have full freedom to listen to myself and make those decisions, I end up eating pizza and fries and ice cream. In that order. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so it's it's interesting to think about the different ways that we can develop this trust with ourselves. I know we kind of touched on one, which was, you know, the, the opening of seeing the reflection in yourself from other people of, you know, seeing who you really are. But what's that? That's kind of parallel. But what's the idea of how do you develop that real trust, inner trust? Mm. I'm thinking about how I develop outer trust and who do I trust? And what do I trust them to do? Right. There's people who I like really trust on some level, but I wouldn't trust them to manage my finances or I wouldn't trust them to drive my car. But like on some level, I trust them. And I think it's kind of the same way with myself. One thing that, that gets in the way of my, see, like trust isn't a goal. Like my goal is not to trust everybody. There are people who should not be trusted. My practice is to discern who I actually trust and who I might be telling myself I should trust, but that on like an instinctive level, I don't actually trust. So applying that to myself, there are ways that I don't trust myself, like that I actually don't trust myself. And there are ways that I do trust myself. If I don't trust another person and I just really am honest with myself and I'm like, yeah, I don't trust you. I might not say that, right? Especially if I don't trust them. <laughs> but, but like, if I, I'm like, okay, that is the beginning of an inquiry. Why? Why don't I trust them? It could be something about them. It could be something about me. But it's an opening of an inquiry. So if you look at yourself, why don't I trust myself? then it's not going to be something about them because it's all about you. So why don't I trust myself to, you know, walk into a casino and gamble responsibly if that's a thing? And by the way, this, is, this isn't my thing. I have no attraction to casinos. But, but, you know, for example, 
Like, why don't I trust myself? How do I feel? What takes over? Like, what is that experience? It's a way of getting to know yourself. I, I think that even an ideology that you should trust yourself, like paradoxically, that is not trusting yourself. Do you trust your distrust? And I hope I'm not getting too confusing here. It's just about being honest. If you don't trust yourself, yeah, be honest about that. I don't trust myself. And here's where it hurts. It's going to hurt not to trust yourself. When someone doesn't trust you, it kind of hurts. When you don't trust yourself, it hurts. Back to accepting. Mm -hmm. Back to accepting and meeting yourself where you're at. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it's if you don't trust yourself, then be okay. Trust yourself and not trusting yourself. That's a thing. Yeah. And the self-trust will grow. You'll become, because you'll become more trustworthy. The more honest with yourself you are, the more trustworthy you become. Right. So it sounds like by really investigating, you know, where these cravings, desires are coming from and what they really mean and what, you know, they, like we said earlier in the convo, they don't necessarily mean food. Then when, when you truly investigate them and really take a hard look at yourself and why you're craving these things in the first place, then you're developing an honest relationship with yourself. Yeah. And take a soft look at yourself, not a hard look at yourself. <laughs> a soft look. A soft look with a soft gaze. And, and you don't have to figure out, you don't have to figure out the craving. You don't have to have like an epiphany of, oh my God, the whole time I was just seeking connection. Okay. Maybe you will have that epiphany and maybe that'll be helpful, but you don't have to have it. All you have to do is integrate the experience of eating that food into your body. And as you do that, it will become less and less available to you as a substitute for what you're actually needing. Yeah. I want to change gears for a second. I know you went through a lot of experiences of different trying different diets and programs and to, to figure out whatever, what you did truly desired for your body. And I know you have experience with, you know, going some time without meat. And I know the whole meat conversation can be very controversial what to eat how to eat meat at all if you should be eating meat responsibly and there's i know there's different ways of looking at it and i'm really curious a where you're at because i know you're, i know you're i saw some things written a long time ago that you know you've been on and been off and b i'm curious on your perspective on the energy of the of the meat of the animals that we consume and how to consume them how to consume them responsibly yeah, I mean, that's a, a, a very large topic. Maybe the cliff notes, because I know we're, we're getting close on time. Ultimately, where I take that conversation is into our attitude about death. And the delusion that kind of runs our whole civilization, that death is the worst thing that can happen to you. When in fact, it's far worse to live a life that you don't want to be living, that is not aligned with your purpose for being here, that is a dead end. To live the wrong life is worse than death. And the soul knows that. 
That's why people get sick when they're not aligned with the life they're supposed to be living. So for me, the same thing applies to the animal world and the plant world. It's much more important for me that animals and plants live in a good way than the timing of their death. You know, and, and, and in nature, it's um, kind of harsh. Like most baby animals die before they grow up. Most baby rabbits. How many babies does a mother rabbit have? I have no idea. A lot. <laughs> How many tadpoles does one mother frog lay eggs for? Hundreds, right? How many of them actually grow up to be a, an adult frog? On average, like, I don't know, two. Otherwise, the world would be inundated with frogs because of exponential growth. Okay, this is like, but what I'm really saying is that any like ethical or moral framework around eating and how much suffering do we cause, et cetera, et cetera, has to take into account naturalness and necessity of death in ecosystems. So for me, the question isn't whether more death is happening or less. The question is, is my way of eating, is my food way part of a living whole, part of an abundant, thriving, developing totality? And any way of eating that is not troubles me, whether it's confinement, animal operations, or those endless fields of plastic that you see when you drive down the Central Valley in California, where they're raising to grow vegetables. Have you ever seen those? I have not, no. An ocean of plastic, because that's what they use for ground cover, for weed control. Like an ocean of plastic, as far as the eye can see, plastic ground cover. That literally hurts to, to see that. And it repulses me to participate in that. And what I do is I take that in. I believe on a subtle level, you can taste that in the food. Like this, this what I was saying before about I can feel my breakfast still, like I can feel the vibration of that. That sensitivity can be refined, practiced and refined to a very, very, very subtle level. I mean, wine experts do that. You know, they can sip some wine and they can tell you like what region of France <laughs> and, and what year the grapes were grown in. Like, how do you do that? You know, it's because of this principle that, that the totality of everything that has happened to that being is stored in its taste, in its vibration on a subtle level. So anyway, uh, so basically I'm kind of, kind of putting an intellectual explanation on top of something that the body can actually attuned to. And, and the intellectual explanation is, is I want to, to live in a way that is consistent with life itself as a totality. Got it. That's definitely the 10,000 mile viewpoint of it. I think that makes a lot of sense. That's a, probably a book in itself to unpack yeah. all the details of that, but maybe for another time, I find that concept really interesting, how all the inputs that are on our foods, all the, th all the people, all the things, all the the, the trucks and the gas and the, everything that, everything that's going into something and the love yeah like mom's food tastes different i'm sorry but it tastes different 
farmers markets as well. I find that yeah. I, I find going to a farmers market, buying produce from farmers who actually grew it, you actually sense mm -hmm. a different different energy. I love farmers markets. Yeah. I definitely yeah. sense that. But I think it's cultivated. I think it's cultivated over time. You take, like you, like you said, it's something that takes. It's in us, but it takes time to develop. Mm -hmm. It is in us. It's been suppressed partly by ideologies about what's good for me. So, like you listen to the ideology and not to your body. It's suppressed by, or, or it's never just developed. Like you, as parents, you know, you can help your children develop it. Like I do that with my kids instead of. I mean, okay, yeah, I do actually limit the amount of sugar and stuff they can eat. But when we do have an ice cream cone, I'll be like, afterwards, I'll be like, I'll direct my son's attention to it. How, how does that feel? Mm. How do you feel right now? Can you feel the ice cream in you? Yeah, so can I. And I don't say that's bad. Remember how you feel now, it's bad. Well, maybe I do that sometimes. But <laughs> I, 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 when I'm aware, I try not to do that. And, and just to teach him to trust his body. That's amazing work. That's awesome. Lucky kids. While we get close to wrapping this up, is there anything that I know you shared a course around food? People can find out more about that on your website, is it? Yeah, it's on there. Okay. So I'll, I'll make sure to link it in the show. I'm curious, is there, how can people find out more about you other than your website and your, your work? My website is probably the best, the best place. There's a YouTube channel that's got some good stuff on it. Yeah. If you poke around, you'll find things. Cool. I'd love to wrap up with a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Right. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. So what is the book or books you've given the most as a gift and why? I'm just going to pull one out of the air. Yeah. Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Chagam Trungpa. And why is that? Because I was so grateful to have read it when I was 22. It saved me a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's, it's um, really subverts like the whole program of pride in one's you know spiritual accomplishments and one's morals and one's virtues and it's just a very honest book awesome i look forward to checking that out what's something you wish more people knew about you that i get easily overwhelmed by people's attention <laughs> yeah i get overwhelmed by people's attention yeah, sometimes I would, and it doesn't mean like, you know, don't contact me, but if I don't respond, don't take it personally. Thanks for sharing that. So my last question for you is here is a question I like to ask everybody, which is what is one area of your life where you are feeling full in right now? I'm feeling full. I feel very full in the area of food. Yeah. I was looking for some other area, but no, in other areas of my life, I've got a little edge of, of hunger. But in the area of food, I'm like, yeah, I got that one. I like what I eat. I feel good about it, you know. That's awesome. It's it's incredible to hear you say that after the journey you've been on around body and food and book that you, the, the yoga of eating, the first book that you wrote. It's really inspiring to have that as your answer after mm -hmm. that being such an important part of your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've written quite a few books and I can't say that I, you know, fully live up to everything I say in my books at all. But the yoga of eating, I'm I'm like, yeah, I pretty much uh, have integrated that one. Love that. Well, Charles, thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing all your all your wisdom with us, um, with me and the listeners. And yeah, man, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. I know it's a 
is a labor of love for you. And, you know, it's not about it's not about money, fame or glory, but you really care. And I really sense that through your work. And I'm just so grateful for you. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to, and I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests, or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.